when you have those kind of bullshit skills, if you're really lucky, something happens to you where you don't want to be a bullshit anymore and you actually want to be as good as other people want you to be. And that starts to change the whole way you approach life. And that happened to me, really. I, I think I was particularly shallow. I mean, I, I'm unbelievably shallow for most of my life, and I'm still pretty shallow now, but I think a lot about the connections to things and the importance of feelings, the emotional attachments we have, and realizing that you need to nurture all of those relationships and you can either pretend to nurture them or get your hands dirty with your human relationships as much as you do with the environmental ones. And when you then discover that the more you put in, the more contented you become, you suddenly think, I wish I'd known this a long time ago. Hi, this is Joshua Spodek, and this is Leadership in the Environment. You're not the only one who cares about your impact enough to act. You're part of a global community undeterred by people saying, if others don't change first, then what I do doesn't matter, and other excuses. We've read the science. We can do this. This show is about personal responsibility, acting, and improving your life by your values. As guest after guest says, the challenge was hard, but thank you for getting me to do it. I wish I'd done it earlier. Listen on for leaders to inspire you, hear their struggles, and then act. Go to joshuaspodick.com slash podcast to commit to a public personal challenge of your own. You're not alone and you don't have to wait for others. From last time, you know Tim's history as a musician and founder of the Eden Project. This time, you'll hear the passion of someone who I believe loves restoring the earth to sustain life. He found a direction and he's going with it. He talks about the spirituality of what he does, connecting the earth, eating, growing, and so on. For city dwellers like me and probably most of us, he shares the potential available to all of us, but we have to take the steps. This episode is about food, plants, land, connection, community, and many things wholesome. And it makes me think of contrasting Tim's world with, I don't know, something like Facebook or Doritos. Welcome to the Leadership in the Environment podcast. This is Joshua Spodak. I'm here with Tim Smith. Tim, how are you doing? I am magnificent today. I'm glad to hear. And now, just before we started recording, you said that you're going to be evasive. And and I want to hear how compost is going or is not going. I'm also kind of curious. We spoke a lot about how you're getting the Eden Project started went. And I don't think I asked what it's like walking around inside Eden Project or in any of them. And I'm really curious what it's like being there, because I haven't been there. Well, let me answer the first question. The compost heap uh, doesn't yet exist, because literally within days of us speaking, I had builders come in to convert a long barn I have, and the area where my compost heap was going to be is now the uh, storing place for a whole bunch of slates, so I have to wait. But I've got exciting things to tell you to compensate for that. I'm interested to hear. I'm all ears. Right. Well, I've been present this last week. I've just been in, um, I've been in Ireland and I've been seeing some really, really cool stuff. We have friends who are, they're researchers in soil health. They're researchers into soil health because they actually breed um, and grow uh, crops for animal nutrition. And that includes growing phytoplankton and zooplankton for omega-3. And 
they bought about four years ago an estate called Douth, which is right in the middle of one of the most important prehistoric sites in Europe called New Grange, which is very large Neolithic burial mounds. I mean, really, really big. And uh, they date from about 4,000 to 3,500 years BC. And uh, my friends have got, are, are quite wealthy, and they've spent a lot of money on the archaeology of the landscape and have actually got evidence of dairy farming about 3,000 years BC on that site. And what has been fascinating has been they've now done it for four years, and everybody thought they were mad. But what they're starting to show is that a measurable landscape, which is so brilliantly sampled uh, that you can test you know, year against year, is a fantastic vehicle for carbon sequestration. And they've also made a lot of discoveries about the degree to which increased soil fertility and organic matter, I mean, startlingly increases the ability of the soil to absorb carbon. Uh, and that in itself is extraordinary because uh, if all farms did this, you'd be able to get a very accurate assessment of the steps that we need to take to combat climate change. And it's a really interesting experience, actually, being there with dirt under your own fingernails and looking at it to just talking about it in theory or reading about it in a book. Um, so I've had this amazing week spending two days on the estate and looking at what they're doing and seeing how we might be able to extrapolate the findings from that into practical steps on the ground at farms all over the world to massively uh, increase the carbon absorption. I mean, we're not doing it with, with, uh, uh, small percentage points. We're talking about three times more, which is massive. Um, so that's a very long series of sentences, but I just wanted anybody who is listening to us talking together to realise there's some really interesting high-tech going on which is about understanding low-tech. Uh, and I think a lot of times we talk about artificial intelligence and things like that. Imagine that we're looking at processes, things that are way beyond our ability to master them and too clever by half. But what's really interesting is how this smart farming is means that you actually need more jobs, but the revenue you get in terms of being able to create targeted planting for the crops you need, targeted nutrition, targeted pH and carbon sequestration. And also uh, what they've done is really interesting modelling and then surveying to find out exactly where the water courses go and flow, uh, which will demonstrate very accurately that if you put additional fertiliser or anything in a particular place, it will show you where it will leach, how it will enter the water course, how it will then subsequently reach major rivers, kill fish, and so on. Uh, so you can get a very quickly a very all-encompassing basic ecological uh, skeleton of your landscape uh, and how to improve it. And in the past, uh, this hasn't been possible to this degree of uh, accuracy. Or uh, It's less actually about siloed accuracy, but it's more about the integrated natural systems and how they work together, which I think is um, exactly where you and I were talking last time about the need for people to see uh, what we're doing in a holistic way in terms of like a game of consequence. If you do this, it does that, and then that does that, and that does that. You know, the old childhood game that we had here in Britain, which was the, the king lost his crown for want of a, uh, a horse's shoe, which is all about a nail falling off a horse's shoe, which meant that the horse went lame, the lame then tripped up. 
course, and he was then killed. And that's it. So I've had a great week, um, and I hope your um, listeners are excited about what I just said. You know, it's I couldn't help but think the whole time of how I'm hearing from you passion and really loving what you're doing. And it feels like it's echoing a pattern in my life, which is that a while ago, I wouldn't have cared about all this stuff. A while ago, you know, I was going out to parties and meeting famous DJs and things like that. And if someone told me the highlight of your summer is going to be going to the farm where you get your stuff and digging carrots out of the ground, I'd be like, what are you talking about? But then when you get into it, it's really fascinating and amazing. And I think that I guess I kind of think of it like we probably evolved to really love digging plants out of the ground and, you know, but not just that, like that style of living. I keep, I don't know if you've, there's, there's fast food and then there's this movement called the slow food movement. And I feel like the principles of that, I feel, I keep thinking, I don't know if there's a slow life movement that's like, I've just been using the term, but is it really out there? Yeah. Uh, But I have to tell you a bit like the slow food movement it is incurably middle class, and it's about people who have the money to hang around talking about how the world could be a better place and doing things more slowly. And I think there is a real danger in the environment movement that it is seen to be something that is almost like a lifestyle choice. And I think what you're talking about and what I'm talking about is actually starting to understand the connections between all the various elements that make up our fragile planet, which is although food is at the end of it, it's almost like a, um, I shudder at the use of the word, but it is a, a nearly spiritual experience in as much as that connection that you feel reveals something that is so much bigger than you that it is genuinely awesome. And I think most people who live in cities don't get that experience because the directness of that experience they experience only at once removed by smelling the carrots or the potatoes that have been brought to the greengrocers and so on, or smelling that lovely smell you get when you have um, hand-picked tomatoes and rest of it. I mean, we know what we're talking about, don't we? I mean, I think I think that lack of belonging to the earth is, is, is something that is not good for the well-being of people. You said understanding these things, but it's also acting and living in them and experiencing them directly. And I mean, I count myself as one of those city dwellers who periodically goes out. I mean, I go to the farmer's market, but I don't think that's, and, and just going to the farm a little bit is, I really enjoy, but I'm not living in that. And I've only taken steps in that direction. But I think before one goes in that direction, you look at what you're giving up. You look at what you have. And I think people generally don't think of what there is on the other side of I didn't realize how much I would love cooking and growing. And I don't think people get, or maybe I'm just speaking about myself in the past. I just did not anticipate what there was on the other side and how much I would love it. No, I think you're right. But I think, uh, not but, and I think what you've been discovering has been the ritual of taking responsibility for your life. Whereas in the past, you were exchanging an artificial thing, money, uh, for a meal that someone else had cooked, which meant that a biological function was being maintained, but it had actually been reduced to being transactional rather than spiritual in its nature. And by actually falling in love with cooking and liking to go to a farmer's market, you've gone on a sort of journey, which is 
revelatory, I think, which is to do with the fact that you're suddenly acknowledging where these things have come from and that they, to do honour to them, you need to be the one that mostly you need to be the one or you and your friends and family need to be the ones that make it transform and translate into something called a repast, a meal. And bear in mind that homo sap sap, you know, us, when you look at us all in like termites and these mounds and things called cities, that you realise how recently in evolutionary terms, the only things that really mattered were the gathering of foods that we could be together as a tribe and the ability to protect that tribe. And the gathering was mainly vegetables and seeds, berries and all that sort of stuff, and the occasional bit of meat. But the entire day, day's activities would have gone towards trying to uh, ensure that uh, each day there was enough to sustain oneself. And you laid offerings to your gods when you felt that you had found as much as you needed. And you laid even more offerings when you went through a long period where you didn't find because you suddenly felt that the gods might be angry with you. Uh, and all of that, that all of that has been robbed from you by going down to a supermarket. Um, the only thing that is interesting to you is sensation and appetite. And that's it. Yeah, you're using language that, I mean, you, you kind of hedged on it yourself when you said the word spiritual the first time, and then you talk about revelatory. And it really, I feel the same thing. Like a little while ago, I was chopping some vegetables and it hit me. I mean, I teach leadership, so mindfulness and aware and self-awareness are big topics that come up in leadership education. And I felt like this is really, I felt a couple of things. One is that cooking your own food and eating food that, you know, fresh, unpackaged is a tremendous route to self-awareness and mindfulness. And it almost, now saying those words now, it sounds almost like modern kind of trendy words, which is not what I'm trying to get at. And then I started thinking if... As you were saying, food has always been a major part of the day's activities. And now I'm thinking that chopping vegetables and eating food that you've grown or found or foraged, that's probably historically normal. And what we live now is not normal. And so it's not like this is some great access to some great thing. It's probably a lot of modern life has taken away. I think I'm just saying what you just said. No, you're saying it in a different language and that's marvelous. That's marvelous. I think I think one needs to sometimes also say some rather cruel things. I mean, we we do a, let's use the word leadership, but we have a, a program called Hot House uh, here at Eden, which big companies come and we take them for three days on a journey through various experiences, um, in, including telling their own individual stories as people. And uh, one of the things which is outraging for them, I mean, they are outraged and it often ends in tears, is when you ask people, are you a good parent? And they said, we didn't come here to be, to be asked questions like that. And I said, actually, being a good parent is actually being a good leader. Uh, are you a good grandparent then? Are you a good brother? Are you a loyal friend? What would other people say of you? Are you trustworthy? Do you respect yourself for being trustworthy? Or do you like the fact that people think you're trustworthy, but secretly you don't think you are? And people just get but after they've got angry that you've asked those questions, people start to think about it. They suddenly realize that holism, the complete person, is a really important anchoring point in terms of the self. That is not to say that you cannot be a bad father, but yet a good leader. It is, however, I think, very difficult to be a good leader 
if you are a bad father and know you are a bad father but haven't got the techniques for being able to back out of that and become a good father again. Because I think an awful lot of people carry the weight of their own disappointment in themselves around like, you know, like a really big burden. Um, and very often the way to get people to suddenly lighten up and realize the pressure they're feeling is because the very things they're asking of other people, which is trustworthiness and responsibility and taking responsibility, is the thing they're hiding from themselves. And yet they have the title of being a leader. I think that's really important. And we've really quite enjoyed this journey of exploring the notion of leadership as if it was a whole person. Some of this, how much of this is coming from connection to land and the rhythms of nature that that we're talking about because some of it is just getting older i think but to me i feel like as i connect more i mean to me my work with environmental things it began environment but then quickly becomes about community and values and meaning and joy and discovery but some of that is possibly just because i'm getting older and have more experience and more i've just seen more and i'm choosing the things that i like I think actually the intelligent person thinking about the matters you just discussed suddenly realizes that the biggest revelation of all is that that word environmental ecology is exactly the same for a human being as it is for a carrot. And that is why what you said just now is so important and in fact profound, which is it may be a function of age, but that age may simply be a function of the time it takes to learn that lesson rather than like tree rings. I think when you understand that ecology, the wider ecology, is not a metaphor, there are in fact only two subjects of interest on the globe, which is environmental and social ecology. Uh, Because once you understand those, they start, once you understand those, all other subjects, both cultural and scientific, fall into place alongside them. That's, I don't think I've ever heard anyone say that because when I look back at my background, I studied physics, which is to me about the world around us. And then I got an MBA, which is about the people around us. And I felt like that's what school was for. I mean, that's what I wanted to get in my education. I I have to hold back on saying that's what school is for, because I'm not so big on how school teaches sometimes. No, that's fine. But that's fine. Because actually, knowledge is really funny. The moment you know something, you smile at yourself, because knowing something, it's made simple to you, isn't it? It's the oddest feeling that you go, I didn't know that. And now I know it. It's really simple. but if some, no one had told me that, I wouldn't know it, and I'd be profoundly ignorant. Yeah, I'm really. It's you're saying stuff that resonates really deeply with me, and it's you're saying things that I've heard. I'm sorry, I feel like I've known, but I haven't really heard said very clearly. And I, I can't help but ask: Were you? Did you say things like this before Eden, or did a lot of this come through Eden? If that's not too weird a question. Well, no, it's not a weird question. I think as you pile through life, making mistakes. And, you know, golly, we all make lots of them. I think one of the things that happens is there's a moment in your life when you suddenly realize you either want to treat knowledge as being all the pre- all your prejudices reinforced by other people, as in, I only want to know about the things that I already know, actually, and I want to read books by people who share my views and all this stuff. Once you realize how profoundly ignorant you are yourself and lay yourself open to not being always the know-it-all who is certain, you suddenly start to see the world in a different way. And I think Eden was probably, it's a very astute question you ask, but I think Eden is very probably the reason, because I was relying on so many different skills to build something wonderful, there was no way in the world that I could claim to have any 
any or hardly any of the skills that made it possible. And that just makes you rather joyous in the presence of the cleverness of your colleagues and friends. That's a marvellous moment, actually. And I think my philosophical thinking that came out of that was rather humbling when I saw the impact that Eden being built had on other people and what they said to me about how they felt in terms of their general optimism and in terms of the importance of what we were doing. And rather strangely, like a weird huckster, I, I started to want to live up to being as good as they thought I was, if you know what I mean. I think I've been dragged to the place I am by not wanting to disappoint so many people who thought I was it already. Um, so I've made myself more and more open to uh, becoming wiser and to knowing more about what I talk about and to shouting less about what I know about when, in fact, I'm just being loud because I hope people won't notice I don't know. So it sounds like a lot of it came from Eden through the part of you being having a leadership role and it forcing you into being transparent or being more out there. And that forced you to be, it sounds to me like more authentic because anything else would really mess everything up. I'm not sure if I'm getting that right. It's actually more rude than that. I have always had a facility with words. And if I wasn't being falsely modest, I would say I have always known how to make people like me when I need it. But when you have those kind of bullshit skills, if you're really lucky, something happens to you where you don't want to be a bullshit anymore and you actually want to be as good as other people want you to be. And that starts to change the whole way you approach life. And that happened to me, really. I, I think I was particularly shallow. I mean, I, I'm unbelievably shallow uh, for most of my life, and I'm still pretty shallow now. But I think a lot about the connections to things and the importance of feelings, the emotional attachments we have and realizing that you need to nurture all of those relationships and you can either pretend to nurture them or get your hands dirty with your human relationships as much as you do with the environmental ones and when you then discover that the more you put in the more contented you become you suddenly think i wish i'd known this a long time ago do you have any i'm curious if you have any stories of any of these transformations happening if if they happen in in if there are any instances where like there was a big change that happened. No, I'm afraid I don't have um, an epiphany. That's what you're looking for. There isn't a, well, not necessarily an epiphany, but just a, um, I don't know, an example. Cause it doesn't sound like it was something that would happen overnight, but maybe there were some, I'm just curious if there are instances that stick as, as influential. I guess it began for me when I began the restoration of the garden that became known as the lost gardens of Heligan where I fell in love with this place. I was going to restore it. And initially, I had a kind of feeling that this is an exotic garden. It's like a sleeping beauty. No one has been here since 1915. Great story to tell. And my friend John Nelson, who's now sadly dead, and I went into a very small walled garden where there were some working buildings, all derelict. There was all the roofs had collapsed. And we started clearing one of them, and it was... Uh, a building that you would call a thunderbox room, a toilet, you know, a room in which there had been a wooden slatted seat um, and a tube that took it down into a pit. And uh, anyway, we were cleaning the whole thing out by hand because all the slates and a lot of the plaster was filling out the space. And um, we found in the plaster, the sun hit the plaster in a particular angle, and we suddenly saw the lead, you know, of pencil writing being reflected at us. and 
slowly but surely we uncovered the names of, I think, 21, 22 people who'd signed under a slogan, come ye not here to sleep nor to slumber, a sort of jokey phrase, uh, and dated at the bottom August 1914, which was, of course, the month that the Great War broke out. And it was then, I guess, and in the ensuing weeks thereafter, when we discovered that um, more than three quarters of those people who'd signed their names had died because they'd all enlisted in the war. Mm. And the war memorials in the three local villages and there was just one day where John and I said, look, let's not do a greatest hits, a garden open to the public. Let's do the whole bloody opera. We'll do the whole thing. We'll make everything work. And there was no example of that anywhere in Britain of telling the story of the working men and women who made these gardens great. And so we began and we re- restored the walled gardens, the glass houses, the cold frames, the forcing pits, the raised beds, the gothies for gardeners to live in, to work in, the potting sheds, the tool sheds. Even the manure-heated pineapple pit. We restored everything, and we then went and found all of the uh, original varieties, soft fruit, wall fruit, standard fruit, and so on, so that now today you are looking at a garden that is probably the best eating garden in Europe um, with all, all the original varieties that grew there. And it was really, really good because we did it to honour the people who lived there before and I think that's the first time in my professional life that I felt that word duty, as in once we started, I felt I felt that this was not something that you would ever want to shortcut because you get one chance at doing something like this, so don't make this something you busk. And I got infected with the desire to do things properly. And the weird thing is, if you're if you are by nature a bullshit, what I, and anybody listening to this podcast who is by nature a bullshit, someone who likes to be a bit larger than life and may sometimes play around with what is true more than they should. The one thing I will tell you is that the moment you make the transition from being able to someone who's committed to doing the right job, you find that you go to bed and you sleep like a baby. To be able to go to bed knowing that you could not have done better than you've done is a wonderful feeling. And I've carried that through to today. And that's 25 years ago. I'm really glad you shared that. And it may not have been an epiphany, but it does sound like a major shift. And it echoes something that you brought forth something that I'm trying to bring out in this podcast, that it's not just environment, it's leadership in the environment. And I think that because we live in the times that we do with the headlines that we do about climate change and plastics and things like that, there's a desperate need. I think people crave leadership and when people act on these things, be it for duty or for our social interactions or the spirituality, whatever, there's, I think that acting to restore nature, to garden, to cook, these things, to protect things, to these things, I can't say it's inevitable, but it certainly seems that it's inevitable that it creates the things that a lot of leaders or people who want to improve their leadership want of things like it it seems always to act on, to create meaning and purpose, to be valuable, to create community, to connect with other people. Uh, And you were talking at the beginning about the LIDAR surveys and and how the people were finding things about their land and, and connections and systems that are intriguing and exciting and people want to share and people want to uh, take part in, I want to bring out that that 
I can't say it's absolutely inevitable, but it just seems like every time everyone I know who takes steps in this direction is glad that they did and they wish they had earlier and they want to take a few more steps in that direction. And generally the thing that keeps them back from it, from doing more faster is that it still feels like it's swimming upstream because of the systems that we've created that divorce ourselves from those things. Well, yes. Uh, One of your own countrymen, Henry Thoreau, writes utterly, utterly brilliantly about that subject and about the fact that our institutions have usually been set up by people who are long dead. And there's a great quote, which I wish I had to hand because I only read it last week or two weeks ago. I I subscribed to a blog um, website called Brain Pickings and this American lady called Maria Popova. uh, It's a super, super site with a, a wonderful conceit, which is that all the books in the world were written at the same time and they're on the same library table. So that when you're reviewing a book that's just come out, you review it against something that may have been written on the same subject in Roman days so that they're not forgotten. And she draws out quite a lot of good writing from the American uh, nature writing tradition. You know, John Muir. I know he was Scots, but he was an honorary. <laughs> we think of him as American. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I think there was a transfer. Um, uh, uh, Walt Whitman, uh, Thoreau, Emerson, all those people. But Thoreau, I hadn't realized until last week, wrote really well about the... There's an English, uh, well, actually an Irish politician called Edmund Burke, who in the 1800s said something rather marvelous, which is rules are for the guidance of the wise and the enslavement of the stupid. And Thoreau takes that as a sort of theme, and he talks about, uh, it's something like, I love humankind, but I hate the dead unkind. And he talks about the institutions that are monuments to the long dead that actually are forced to carry out the wishes of people who are no longer contemporary with a slavish adherence to the rules of their original manufacture that leads to cruelty wherever you look. And I would say that when you look at a many of the institutions of government, um, many of the corporate institutions, uh, the people that are in charge of them are protecting some kind of brand that should have died years ago, um, and they they don't act. He also says rather spectacularly about meeting so, so many people who are part of the establishment that are like people with only the domes of their heads visible above the earth. And he said, they do less than the dead who at least have the grace to rot. <laughs> and I think what you say is, I think I'll end the conversation actually on, on, a, on a thought for you, um, which is that I think there are two things going on right now. I think the first thing, if you're a keen lover of nature, you know that trees just before they die have their greatest efflorescence, their greatest flowering as if they're trying to have one last hurrah. And I think when I look around the world today and I see the politics of Britain and Hungary and Poland and America and um, Brazil, a lot of my contemporaries feel really, really depressed at the way they see the world as going, as going in a particularly right-wing way. And I feel rather joyous about the whole thing because to me, I'm like watching the efflorescence of a dying system the last hurrah of people that believe that centrism 
and a waggy-fingered Old Testament prophet approach to um, the, the leadership of uh, one's people uh, is coming to an end. So I think we should celebrate that, yet to be vigilant that in the short term, before they all pop off, they don't allow us, are not allowed to do too much damage. But I think the really big thing, uh, and I don't know whether it's been talked about in America, but very, very many of my friends and I talk about this, which is that the damage of the financial collapse of 2008-9 was very much more significant psychologically than it now appears. And the reason is not because of the austerity that was forced upon everybody by actually theft from banks. It was because we could no longer hide from the fact that from the time we were children, we've always imagined that government institutions or policing organizations and whatever could keep us safe. There was a they. I mean, we always used to say, didn't we? Uh, They will stop it. They will make sure that doesn't happen. And I think there's a whole heap of people who woke up in the course of 2009. By wake up, I mean uh, suddenly became aware that they are dead. There is no they. There is only a we. And if if there is only a we, the implication of that is terrifying because it means it's we that have to take responsibility. We. It also means that if capitalism won the battle which saw the Berlin Wall going down in 1989, um, it's got to prove that it has the mettle to have been a worthy winner of that battle. And I think this is the struggle we're seeing globally with the, if you like, the bastions of old capital who are sort of rapacious, um, old school. And there's a whole new breed of capitalism that is understanding that they have to be protectors of the common wealth. And still, when you talk about us feeling impotent that we are swimming upstream, one of the really big battles has got to be that we say, excuse me, everybody, the rules of capitalism weren't handed down to Moses himself. You know, We made them up. Um, and maybe we could be pro-capital, but do things which are really, really much more pro-citizenship uh, and the environment as well by having some different rules. And that is my big obsession at the moment. I think the big battleground for sustainability, the big battleground for all the people who appear on this podcast has got to be that if you accept that the majority of the world's wealth is actually created by things called corporations that then provide the taxes that enable all the good things to happen, then it's essential that the corporations themselves are moral structures. We're talking about something hugely important here, which is about how do we instill into capitalism a moral compass, which means that it is not only looking to profit, but it is looking after um, the well-being of fellow citizens. And if they can't do that, they should not have the right to trade uh, under the uh, securities of being a limited liability company. That's the last thing I really want to say, because I think your point was really profound, which is about the more and more people wanting to take responsibility, but they're feeling they're swimming upstream. The reason is that they are living through a really interesting period, and we're only 10 years into it, when all the people they thought were going to be proxy parents looking after them on the outside, making sure that the drugs that they had were, of course, they were sensible because they were supported by doctors and the banks were trustworthy and so on. And we discovered that all of that is actually questionable. That's a pretty scary time to be alive, isn't it? And at the same time, it's probably much safer to walk in New York than it's ever been. So there's a lot of upsides too. Feeling inspired? Do you like hearing others acting that you're not alone? 
Go to joshuaspodek.com slash podcast to hear other interviews, but even more valuable, join the growing community of people who care enough to act, not just talk. Read the list of people who have taken on personal challenges and then commit to one yourself. Don't be surprised if you end up loving it, changing more, and finding people following you without you even trying. That's what happens when you improve your life by living by your values. This is very deeply connected, intertwined things that you're putting together that is a perspective that I wish you had a newspaper column I could read regularly. <laughs> but I guess I'll have to make my way to Eden and see the results of your, the, the expression of your work there. Or there's going to be, what's the status for ones in the United States? Um, well, we've got two projects in, in your marvelous country. Uh, one involves uh, some parkland in the Sierra Nevada mountains uh, in California, where we're working with the Archangel Ancient Tree Archive of Copamish, Michigan, uh, in trying to create a lot of traction. And they're doing really well behind taking cuttings of the very, very ancient, most ancient trees on the grounds that the most ancient trees um, exist, either because they are lucky, which, of course, for many of them will be a case in point because they just weren't cut down, um, and certainly they are genetically very strong, therefore to propagate them, to then replant at least 10% of uh, replanting through some of these ancient trees and giving nature a helping hand by planting them perhaps on, uh, on uh, latitudes that are slightly cooler right now in preparation for any warming that might come their way uh, is a great way to, uh, if you like, restore the great American parks tradition and uh, mediate some of the terrible impacts on those coastal redwoods and giant sequoias, uh, which the, both the fires have had and also the, um, uh, the depredations of the pine beetle have had. I mean, my word, when you travel there, I've never seen so many dead trees in my life. So that's one of them. And another project I'm not actually really allowed to talk about, but it's in South Carolina. I say not allowed. It's simply because we, we haven't done any press about it. Um, is and is led by a very inspirational American who's already put his where his mouth is, because he believes that over the next ten years America will wake up and realize that closed loop systems is actually great capitalism, and he has built a processing plant for uh, white goods, uh, which has no wastage at all. It's utterly brilliant. These things are just taken apart and turned back to their basic metals and alloys and so on. Uh, it was very expensive to build, but it's so efficient that it actually paid itself back in about 18 months. And now there are communities all across America who want to have this system. And the Eden Project is going to be working with him to create kind of a, a new town that is working on the closed-loop system and will be really profitable. The idea is to show that actually environmentally friendly sustainable business is profitable business. That's our whole brief for this project. That's very exciting. Well, glad to hear that there's things nearby and I may pass through the Sierra Nevadas and I may pass through South Carolina. And if that's the case, I'll contact you ahead of time to find out if I can visit these things. I mean, your country, the problem with America, from my perspective, is it is the most marvelous country full of marvelous people who have a tremendous ability to find the wrong in each other from time to time. But if ever you were looking for a country to save the world through a technical innovation on the rest of it, um, I would look no further than your own country and say, look, come on, fellow citizens, let's get that spirit of enterprise 
working on the things that we actually share, but don't seem to realize at the moment we do share. Ah, you'll like my next book coming out in May, which is on initiative and exactly initiative based on finding problems that you care about and that others value you solving. Well, that's a few months away. Well, I wish you, I wish you a fellow writer's good wishes that you have the patience to finish the book. Oh yeah. It's uh, we're just working on the design and it's in copy. It's done copy editing. It's in um, being laid out and in a, Actually, I'll send you a proof if you're interested, and it should be ready in about a week. Marvelous. Marvelous. That sounds great. Cool. Yeah, so if I pass through, or if I'm going to one of these places, I take the train everywhere now because I'm not flying, so I can usually stop along the way. And in the meantime, at your end, it sounds like the composting area that's being used for other things, that sounds temporary. And so at some point, that area is going to open up and you'll say, ah, it's time to compost. And when that happens, I'm sure you'll think of me in this podcast. And I leave an open invitation for you to let us know and to bring you back to hear how that goes when it's not being used for other things. You have achieved something that no one else has achieved. That whenever I see a compost bin, I think of you. <laughs> me, the, the worms and I are, are overjoyed. <laughs> Absolutely, I'm delighted. Well, look, lovely speaking to you again. And uh, let's stay in touch. And uh, good luck with everything. Same here and same to you. Thank you very much. Bye. Bye. Usually I prefer second episodes to cover the personal challenge that the guest did. In Tim's case, we didn't so much, though it's hard to miss that he lives a life of having done so for years. I found the conversation fascinating. It gave me direction of what to enjoy. For a city dweller like me, he's had experience that I haven't had. I mean, I would have liked to hear how he took on his challenge, and I expect that he'll get to his composting soon. In the meantime, I plan on visiting an Eden project. Did you feel inspired too? Then act. Go to joshuaspodak.com slash podcast and click to commit to your personal challenge so you can inspire others. Value means better and worse. And living by your values means living better by your values. You may struggle at first, but it's the hero's journey from living by others' values to living by yours. People say that little things add up. I won't argue against it, but what I find counts is acting. Doing something, anything, starts that mindset shift from the debilitating others should act first or making excuses to the empowering I can make a difference. And living by my values improves my life. I don't have to wait for others to act first. I'm looking for leaders, people who will bring what works here in this podcast to communities I haven't reached. Billions of people want to change their behavior. There's room for leadership from personal leadership of just yourself to whatever scale you want. Start by acting and changing yourself. Go to joshuaspodak.com slash podcast and commit to your personal challenge.